As I said, it is my pleasure to fill in for Pastor Al this week while he's on vacation. And I don't really know how he goes about figuring out who's going to fill in for him when he's gone, but I'm definitely glad that he gave me this week and not last. I mentioned to my friend, poor Amy over here, I had to get up in front of you and talk to you about the kingdom of God and what God expects with respect to your money. What you do with it, what you don't do with it. But I, I get to talk about a great feast. Upon further reflection, I figured out, kind of stepped back, took a look at who was available and said, that's the guy that we want talking about the feast. In the worship committee notes, which I've got in my hands on, it says, give this one to big boy. So, <clears throat> that is my task. Uh, but before we dig into this week's passage from Matthew's Gospel about the great eschatological banquet, the eschaton, the end of time, that great banquet where all believers of all times will gather with our Lord and Savior for that great heavenly feast. Before we talk about our passage and what it has to say about that, I want to make sure we're on the same page when it comes to the notion of the kingdom of God that is, after all, the centerpiece of our message for all of our summer sermons. And I don't know about you, but I know some people like me uh, will miss a service here or two during the summer. And unlike me, who had to sit down and listen to the sermons so he didn't say something that somebody else already did. You may not have done that. And so I want to make sure we are focusing on this notion of the kingdom of God. It is absolutely central to the message of Jesus. We know this both by the number of times that he spoke about it and the pride of place that it gets in his ministry as recorded in the Gospels. He spoke of the kingdom of God in Matthew's Gospel alone 38 times. And in Mark's Gospel, which we understand probably to have been the first, the first words of Jesus, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you open it up and you see Jesus' words. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. I tell my students when somebody, the first words they say, you want to pay attention to them. They're first for a reason. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' first words in red actually are part of a conversation with Satan in the wilderness, uh, which Mark doesn't give us uh, the, the terms of the conversation. But in Matthew, that's immediately followed up after Jesus comes out from his time of preparation and testing. Jesus, we're told by Matthew, from that time on, he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Well, given the centrality of this notion of the kingdom of God in Jesus' message, we better make sure we can state pretty simply what it is. And what it is is that final state of affairs when God's supreme reign is fully realized over a transformed world and in the hearts of his redeemed people. Put very simply, it is when creation is restored as God intended it to be in Genesis and as he promises it will be in Revelation. The coming of Christ into this fallen world set in motion the development of 
that kingdom, God's kingdom, grows and progresses, progresses as the good news of Jesus is proclaimed. Lives are changed for the better. The world is transformed. That's hard for us sometimes to see when we pick up the paper and read about the horrible things that go on in this world. But we saw the movie about life without a Sunday school teacher, and I ask you to think about a world into which Jesus Christ had not come. And we'll see that the kingdom of God is indeed growing. But the perfect goodness of that kingdom will not be fully realized until Jesus comes again and evil suffers its final defeat. That is why in this sermon series we have often mentioned the kingdom of God is come. And indeed it did in the person of Jesus Christ, but it is not yet fully here, not yet fully realized, which is why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. For we wish it to be more and more so here as it will be on that last day. So what teaching do we have today about the kingdom of God? Well, to use good feast terms, let's taste and see. Matthew 8, the first 17 verses. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift of Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers unto me, under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our passage connects us right away to what has come before. The opening words, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, a reminder that chapters 5 through 7 have been the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus preached 
that the kingdom of God would be the possession of the poor in spirit and those who were persecuted for his sake. He preached that the kingdom of God that we've just defined would be theirs. He has told them this. And now, as we begin chapter 8, we are going to get physical evidence of the arrival of this kingdom that Jesus has preached about. Matthew reports a series of healing miracles intended to demonstrate that God's kingdom, a kingdom in which tears are wiped away and all things are made new, has broken into this world of pain and suffering in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet the kingdom which has arrived may not be the kingdom that many were expecting, for we see that the miracles that Matthew reports to us point to the importance in God's kingdom of those deemed unimportant in the kingdoms of this world. Those who are living on the margins of the earthly kingdoms of Jesus' time are shockingly the beneficiaries of the miracles he performs to inaugurate the coming of God's kingdom. By these miracles, Jesus sends the clear message that while this world creates boundaries that separate us, there are no barriers to citizenship in the kingdom of God. In our passage from Matthew, Jesus breaks down barriers of purity, of ethnicity, of gender, and he announces that everyone, think now of the credit card commercial, everyone, not just someone, not everyone, but everyone. You know that commercial, right? Everyone has been invited to accept God's invitation to the eschatological banquet, to the banquet at the end of time for all believers in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. This feast of which Jesus speaks, Isaiah prophesied it, and the book of Revelation confirms it. It was always intended that God's kingdom and the great banquet there would be for all people. But many Jews of Jesus' time had forgotten that and seen their chosenness as something that was done by God for their own sake and not for the sake of others. And yet, in the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, God's people are blessed so that they may be a light and a blessing to others. And, of course, we are tempted as well to see our salvation in Christ sometimes as an end in itself. Grateful for it, yes, but not fully understanding that it's really just a means to God's greater end to then use us as redeemed people to invite more people into the kingdom. But inviting them all has always been God's plan. We see this in prophecy from Jeremiah, the 25th chapter. I mean, excuse me, Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. I'm getting excited personally. <laughs> On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, 
Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Now I emphasized them, but I don't know that you kept count. There were five alls in that passage. A clear statement that all are invited, our title for this week. And as Jesus says to the centurion and those gathered around, they'll come from the east and the west, symbolizing the breadth of God's creation. And we're told at the end of the story in the book of Revelation that those who come to the feast will be called blessed. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. I love it when we see the totality of Scripture from beginning to end coming together to describe this banquet the banquet that Isaiah told everyone would be there that Jesus speaks of to the centurion and that we then see with the Savior at the victory celebration of the Lamb. Well, who will be among the diners? Well, first we have a leper, we're told. In the ancient world, this would mean that he had any one of a number of skin diseases, many of which were highly contagious, which is why he would have to isolate himself from others in the community and cry out, unclean, unclean, if anyone came near. In the kingdom of this world, he was deemed unclean and was unwelcome. Yet Jesus broke down the purity barrier that stood between him and others. And he brought the man back into community, back into relationship with others. Well, next at the dinner, we have a centurion. This centurion has come compassionately seeking help for his servant, for another. Yet, the centurion is a Gentile. And not only that, but he's an officer of the occupying forces. He's a symbol of the enemy of God's people. And yet, in our passage, we see Jesus breaking down the barrier not only of ethnicity between Jew and Gentile, but also of enmity of hatred, of conflict, by commending the centurion's faith as greater than he is found anywhere in Israel. And last, we have a woman. You've heard it spoken of here before, that at this time and this place, the role of women was second-class citizens at best. But by his healing touch, Jesus broke down the gender barrier and showed that no one, no one who was made in God's image is marginal in the kingdom of God. The clear implication of these miracle stories is that there are some who are not welcome at the dinner tables of this world, but they will be guests at the heavenly banquet alongside the patriarchs of our faith of Abraham, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus tells us that some who thought they were in and sought to keep those people, whoever they might be, sought to keep them out, 
they'll be gnashing their teeth instead of chowing down. So the obvious question is, what separates those who will be feasting from those who will be weeping? But again, these same stories of miracles give us the answer. First, in the person of the leper, and I want us to look at each one and learn by example from them. The leper. We see someone who knows he has a problem and who humbly kneels before the one whom he calls Lord. Don't miss that. That is his form of address, Lord. And he begs the Lord for healing. In the centurion, we see a man with worldly authority who submits to one with heavenly authority, whom he too calls Lord. Don't miss that. And though we don't know what Peter's mother-in-law said, Mark has not recorded her words, he very simply tells us what she did. If you remember from my reading of the passage, upon being healed, she waited on him. And I don't want you to immediately jump to the conclusion, oh, well, of course, that's what women in the ancient world were supposed to do, wait on the men. In fact, the word that is used there is diakone. We get the words deacon, diaconate from that. And what it truly means is to complete a service in simplicity of heart. It's the same root word used to speak of what the angels did for Jesus when he was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It is there translated as ministering. To Jesus. So this is the word used to describe what Peter's mother-in-law did in response to the healing touch of Jesus. No, she was not a waitress. She was humbly serving her Lord. So the enemy, the, the enemy soldier, the leper, the marginalized woman, not the people you'd expect at the banquet, but they'll be there. They'll be there celebrating the full realization of God's reign because in this life, they recognize the authority of Jesus as their Lord and humbly submitted to it. They knew they had a need and they weren't too proud to admit to the one, in fact, the only one who could meet it. They admitted their need, they repented, and they came to him. If you want to dine in the kingdom, we have to recognize the authority of the king. It's that simple. That's the common denominator in these three. They had faith. They viewed him as their Lord, and if he really is Lord, it's not just something we say, then we submit. And that can be very hard to do. And Jesus knew that because he did warn those gathered of a tearful future for some who would not respond to him in trust and in submission. Just as it was then, the concept of an authority outside of ourselves is threatening. Threatening, perhaps, to a comfortable lifestyle, to social acceptance. It is hard when tempted by so many things in this world, when invited into things that we do not want to be part of, to say, I'm sorry, but my king does not permit that. 
We don't like talking about authority figures or kings, and yet we have one. And acceptance into the kingdom entails acceptance of this king and of his authority. That is a truth that we acknowledge and express today as we come to the Lord's table. We're about to celebrate together a foretaste of that heavenly banquet. And as we prepare to do so, we confess that we dine with him, not because we are worthy to do so, but precisely because we are unworthy. We come humbly seeking his healing touch and his saving grace, proclaiming him as Lord, our Lord, and meaning it when we say it. We come not threatened by his authority over our lives, but grateful for it and submissive to it by acknowledging the sin in our lives, repenting of it, and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we say yes to his invitation to the feast.